Hello, this is Father Bill Watson with the Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. We're very happy today to be bringing you an interview uh, with Father Trung Pham of the Society of Jesus. The first part of our interview will be Father Trung's childhood in Saigon. He was born just several months before the fall of Saigon. You will hear the story of his father being in re-education camps, his mother having to struggle and make their way. So he was born in 1974. So the first part of this history is something uh, that uh, many older Americans are aware of from the time of the Vietnam War, but many people listening today will find very interesting. So here's the first part of our interview, childhood up to the age of 16 and emigrating to the United States with Father Trung Pham. I'm very excited to introduce today a Jesuit and a brother, community member of mine, Father Trung Pham. And before we do anything, we're going to invite Father Trung to offer a prayer for those who will be listening to this podcast. So, Father Trung, welcome, and I invite you to pray. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for this opportunity. I would like to start with prayer in English and in Vietnamese. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We praise you, Lord, for all the graces that you bestow on us. Please fill this space with your Holy Spirit so that we can be inspired and be, can follow your will. Xin Chúa chúc lành cho buổi nói chuyện của chúng con hôm nay để chúng con mỗi ngày gần Chúa hơn và tiếp tục làm sáng danh Chúa hơn trong cuộc sống. We add this to Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you very much. For those listening, Father Father Trung went outside of his office. So those urban sounds, you just listen to them and let them kind of float away as you listen to our conversation. And we're going to do three parts to this conversation today. I wanted Father Trung, who grew up in Vietnam, to talk about his experience growing up there, his family, some special experiences around his father, and then the emigration to the United States. And then we will look at his life here in the U.S., his Jesuit life, his work, current work. And in the third part, we will explore Vietnam's current status with regards to catechesis, the Catholic Church, and how it's allowed to operate in Vietnam in modern times. So, Father Trung, you are a Jesuit brother of mine in the community at Seattle University. We're very good friends. You have shared a number of times in our Jesuit settings your background and your experience from Vietnam. Can you just uh, explain to people how you grew up, the experiences of your family, and the the events that eventually brought you to the United States? Bill, I, I was born in Vietnam, in Saigon, in 1974, in September. Okay. And then the fall of Saigon was on April, the end of April, 75. So I was about six months. Uh, I was born before the war end or collapsed. So after I was born, my dad was sent into the re-education camp. And uh, he he was in the prison for six and a half years, about seven years. Why was your father signaled out for re-education? Oh, this is the program for a communist who uh, want to control or put other officers, military uh, officers, to the prison so that you know they they avoid all these uprising or revolution from from these people. So your father was in the military for the South. Yes, he was in the intelligence department 
Okay. So not just a military person, but also an academic and somebody who would need re-education. And it was a labor camp. It was a very hard labor camp, physically and also mentally, in terms of in the morning, daytime. He would work a lot physically, and then in the nighttime, they uh, would uh, ask him, them, this is about, you know, they divide this group into many regions around the country. Uh-huh. And usually it is a mountainous area, and, and it has all these, they exposed to many different circumstances, challenging circumstances. Uh, and at night, he would listen to the philosophy of Karl Marx or the communist philosophy. Would those be live conferences or things that they listened to that were recorded? Live. They, Live, they would talk okay. for, 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 for hours and hours, and, okay. and all these prisoners have to just be there for like an hour. And then they also didn't have enough food to eat, so they were malnutrition for wow. many days, like a labor camp for, for the prisoners, and it's painful. Was it far away from Saigon? Yeah, so they have different locations along the country. It's about, depends. Depends uh, on the location, can be a few hours, up to many hours up in the north. So my dad, at first year, he was sent to the north. And depends on where you at, the situation was different. In, in the north, it's a harsh condition for them because, you know, the north doesn't have enough food. So people who are sent to the north would be the most criminal, according to the standard and wow. a most challenging place. And then after a year, he was sent to the South for the rest of his term. So about six or five years, he, he was sent to the South. And my mom didn't know anything about where he was at for a year. So nobody knew where they went. They, they just, you know, took off wow. after the announcement. The announcement was, we just want to communicate with you a new lie a new program so you just have to pack for three days and then we'll we'll let you go back to your home so, so that they, that was the that was the disguise to basically arrest them and take them away yeah so everybody okay. follow everybody follow so they took them to the truck the military truck and then they pulled them into the camps and some of them didn't didn't come back some of them never come back and some of them die there and some of them could not communicate with the family so it's all these individual situation wow. and some of them stay there for 12 years 20 years my dad was there for like seven years wow and so did, did your mom ex- describe to you when you grew up you know what it was like for her during that year when she didn't know where he was yeah it was very uh challenging is is, is one but painful is one not knowing whether my dad died or not is another fearful experience and unknown. So she had to kind of stay afloat with the other friends who have a similar situation, but they had no words for about a year and no letters, no communication at all. So wow. we just have to pray or like a hope in faith. So, you know, Catholic faith becomes part of the lifestyle, live experience for these women because they have to live in faith. Otherwise, they couldn't go on. They couldn't survive. That's they right. They have to believe that in something higher power can protect them and get them through. Right. Powerful. And you were the youngest 
um, you because you were born right before the fall of Saigon. Would you do you have older brothers and sisters who your mom was taking care of, and how did she take care of them? Yeah, yeah. So I'm the only child. I don't have brother and sister. When he came back from the camp, my mom was able to get pregnant and then deliver a son. Nice. Uh, but then he, he he died three days oh. after oh, he was my. born, and then two miscarriage afterward. Okay, so oh. that's like a sibling uh, story. So I'm the I left as an only child. Okay. So during that time, it was a very challenging time for the whole country. So the whole country was put into starving kind of economic poor as a whole country. Because they don't want to communicate and connect with the world, so all they have is the the communist ally, and you know China and then Russia are part of the ally, but then they they not rich as well. So then the whole country don't don't want to associate with other country. So then the whole country went to poverty and disaster. So it was very hard to live through in the 70s up to 80s. My how, how did you, how did your mom feed you and take care of you during that time if if your dad was uh, in a labor camp? Yeah, so the family was lucky. We don't have a lot of people. We only have you know a small number of members. Like I live with my grandparents from my mom's side, and then my mom okay. is the only child, and and I'm I'm the only child. So we get like four members in a family. So okay. we were able to go through this with a minimal kind of standard. So we don't have a lot of mouth to feed. So then, it was okay. Okay. Uh, they they did okay for several reasons. One, they have the our house is on the front street. So if you go to Asia, this is like if you have a house in the the main street, you can do business. And they sell ice cream and ice. They were able to purchase a refrigerator. Okay. And they were able to do that business. You know the banana uh, ice cream. You know they, okay. they they peel off the things and then they make ice cream and then they sell ice. And and also my mom was able to teach at the high school chemistry. Okay. Chemistry, so, okay. Yeah, so that's how she was able to support the family with a small number. Even though the whole country was devastating in economy and other things, but uh, we were okay. I remember we don't have to eat corn. You know, sometimes they have to replace the rice with supplement like corn or sure. potato, sweet potato, or yams. But my family, you always have rice because we are able to uh, purchase it, and also not a lot members in the family, so we okay. Even though we're not in the high end scale, but in terms of other families, we okay. Did the communists do anything to oppress or harass uh, your mom or other mothers whose husbands were taken away into labor camps? Yes. At that time, we were labeled as the old regime family. So I'm the old regime son. So they were very tight in terms of uh, traveling. So this is okay. the, the program for whole country. So when you ever you travel, you got to report to the local authority, and you have to report when you leave and you come and all these uh, programs as in place. Okay. And you have to meet every week to talk about communist program and learn about you know communist things and that. So they were kind of forcing a re-education for the families as well as those husbands who were taken away. Yeah. 
and to the point that my relatives also stay away from our family because they don't want to get associated with the sure. old Jim family. That's a crack and that's a, like a gap in the relationship within the family to the point that they don't want to invite us to New Year celebration, for example. They don't want to hang out with us. They, they don't want to visit us. If we visit them, they, they want to be short time because they don't want people to know that they are part of the old regime family. And every part of the town, they have people to report. I mean, this is like... Spies. 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 Yeah. So right. this is happening all over. So you, be, you become suspicious and you don't want to, you know, get into a life you want to live you know, normally. So, so all these political associations will be uh, bad signals. So even the family gets far away from us. You know, not totally, but, but they don't want to talk to us. Take us forward, fast forward to your father getting out of the re-education or labor camp. How old was he when he went in? Were your mom and dad the same age when you were born? And how old was he when he got out? So they get married. My mom, when when she was 33, okay. she, get the, she, she was a pharmacist. So she got all the education she needs. But that time it was very old, okay. according to that time. To get married at 33. To, yeah, right. Right, right. so my mom is, uh, my dad was four years older, 37 when okay. he got married, and then he was there for seven years. So they gave birth to you uh, in the first in their first year of marriage? Yes. Okay, so they were both in their 30s then, okay. 30, not 33, and then 30, 34, okay. and then when they get out, 37, yes. So your dad would have been in till he was 40, if he was in seven years, 34? Th 37, uh, 30, okay. yeah, 40, something, yeah, Okay. when he got out. And do you have memories of him coming home? So I was able to visit him in the north for one time. And then when he came home, I still have memories. He, he came home by tricycle. You know, they, they used to have these people who is like a motorcycle. So he get home by car at a certain kind of station and he get on to that tricycle to get home. And he still remember the house. So he stopped in front of our house. And I remember that moment. Yeah. And my wow. mom still didn't know that he come home. She thought that it was just a dream. She just keep asking questions. Is this a dream or is this a real? Wow. What happened after he got home? Did were you allowed to resume? Did did he did he talk about was he re-educated or did he did he intellectually resist and just kind of go along with it, pretending like he was believing what they were telling him? Yeah, he did. He never talked to me in depth what happened. He okay. only brushed it off when I asked him. They terrible and they horrify. That is one incident that he uh, told me the story when he was in the asylum. But the rest, I never get the, the whole okay. story from his perspective, except one story uh, that in general that they couldn't have enough food to eat. So every time they have dinner, they have to drink a lot of water to fill the stomach. So when wow. they get input the food, they feel like they are full. And then uh, his friends have to sometime become spies so that they get food. You know, all these psychological sure. warfare that you have to get to. And some yield, some fall into that trap, and some stand still. So after the prison, people would identify, like, no, like, you know, this guy is just become, you know, a spy. So they sure. don't want to honor that person. 
Okay, one story I, I knew that was true, that he he happened to be also an artist. He was educated as an artist okay. before he joined the military. So what, during, what kind of artist? What kind of artist was he? So he's a painter. He was trained as a silk painter. And okay. he was like in the eighth or ninth generation of the artists who was, went through the fine art institute where the French, when they established the school, uh, the fine art school in Vietnam. So he studied under one of the prominent artists in the silk painting. So nice. French, when they occupied, they also established the fine art school. Okay. They started with the north and then they also established one in the south. And those people the first generation now be, they become their their work become like a national kind of treasure. Wow! The consequence generation get also get education from there, but but because of the war and all that, it, it the, the, these generation get lost. And right now in Vietnam, they're interested in those artists who make artwork before the fall of Saigon. So my dad. His work it was collected in the Fine Art Museum of Saigon, or they call Ho Chi Minh Fine Art Museum right now. And the reason his work was in there because he got award first prize for UNESCO first prize when he depicted the translated as the horrible boulevard because th there was an incident when they have to run from the north away from uh, the battle on this avenue, and many people die on this avenue. It's like the Milai, kind of the, the picture, but this is not Milai. This is also happening before that. Okay. So he depicts that scene with a mother carrying a dead child, holding also another child running. So it was awarded as a first prize. So it stayed there in the museum. So anyway, so go back to ha, the... Have you seen it in the museum? I have not seen it. Okay. Uh, his friend saw it. I have a picture. Oh, good. Send it to us and we'll post it with the interview. Yeah. So it became, and after the war, so they collect that, they put it in there. And then after the war, no one touched the museum. The, the museum was a bomb. So the collection was there. And then he now still have, they still have that. And they asked him to provide any artwork that was produced before the war, but no, that's impossible. Like it's, sure, it's very sure. hard. It's all gone, and he had several exhibition of that. But but one of the prizes was like the first. That's great. UNESCO. Yeah. So he was okay. So let's talk about his talent in the prison, right? So he was in the prison, and he at one point his friend asked him to do a mother Madonna sculpture. Mm -hmm. So he he carved it out of wood. And he specifically asked his friend to say, if somebody asks you this, you got to say that this is mother and child. The word came out. The communists accused him that this is you know, religious propaganda. So he was put into asylum for 10 wow. days. No light, hot temperature. They, they only feed him with a little window with food. And all mm -hmm. he stayed there for all 10 days. Wow. So the only thing that he was released because his feet were swollen. So it was too much for the chain to handle. So they would get him out. That's when okay. he was released. So that was the only story that I get from my dad. 
And okay. you, I'm sure you will get more in the future as he gets older. Yeah, but but I doubt it because he refused to go back to those memories. He never like okay. wanted to share. Yeah, he got angry when we talk about communism. Why don't you fast forward us to how long your dad and your mom and yourself lived in Saigon before you emigrated and the process of getting to the United States? Yeah, so it's nine years total. So he was out of prison in 1981, and we left Vietnam in 1990. And we were able to do that because the U.S. government under leadership of Reagan, President Reagan, offered the sponsorship for all families uh, for the person who put in the prison re-education camp and okay. their family to come to United States. It's about, there are about a million of us wow. total, uh, come to United States. What year was it and how old were you and how old were your parents at that time when you emigrated? And did you go to California? Yes, I, we, we settled in California because we had his uh, niece in California. They okay. left in 1980 by boat, they escaped by boat, so they were they settled in California. So when we left Vietnam, they asked us if they have any family members. There's several choices. We can go to Virginia by sponsorship of a sister, a Vietnamese uh, Catholic sister. They have a program to sponsor the family there. Or we got to go to the, uh, uh, the relatives. So we decided to go to to the relative. There was 1990. I was 16 years old. Okay. My 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 dad was in the 44 to 48 when they left. And we settled in Orange County. It's Westminster first. I went to Westminster High for a, a semester. And then we moved to Garden Grove. And then uh, I settled, I studied there for three years. So I have to re-study my 10th grade. Okay. And, then be, and it was a good decision. And, and so I stayed in, in high school for three years. And then I went to community college, the Golden okay. West, as well as Orange Coast College, community college. Those are the possible choice that we can got, get. We couldn't jump to a four-year college right sure. after high school because of all English and all these things. Sure. And then I was able to transfer to UCLA for my undergrad degree in chemical engineering. Good. We'll come back to that in the second part when we talk about your education at UCLA and your migration to the Society of Jesus. So it's very powerful. I was in high school. I could have gotten drafted for the Vietnam War. I was uh, available for drafting. My number was never high enough to go to the draft. But um, that was a part of my childhood, my, you know, my teenage years. And so it's, it's nice to have the story of kind of the horror of what it was like for uh, Vietnamese people who lost their country to the communist powers of the North. So thank you very much, uh, Father Trung. And when we come back, we will talk about life in the States and things moving forward. So thank you very much. Thank you. We are back with part two of our interview with Jesuit Father Trung Pham. 
who is an artist. We heard last time in the podcast of his birth in Saigon before the fall of Saigon, his father's imprisonment, and what life was like in that communist country before they were able to emigrate with the help of President Ronald Reagan on a program for Vietnamese people, and they moved to Orange County. The first part of this second leg of our interview follows uh, Father Trung from the age of 16, where he goes to school in Orange County. He is an only child, so it was kind of difficult for him. He did not have an extended family, but he was very successful. He eventually ended up graduating with a degree in chemical engineering from UCLA. And soon after that, he joined the Jesuit order, and he pursued a career in art, leaving his engineering background behind. So he picks up the work of his father as an artist, and we will get his experiences of school, of his life in the society, and his work as a Jesuit artist. Father Trung Pham. Father Trung, it was great hearing about your life in Vietnam and about your parents and about what life was like being born right before the fall of Saigon, a very historic moment, I think, even for many Americans who were alive during that time, and coming to the United States and to California, emigrating into Orange County first and then to Garden Grove. And then we ended the first section with you being in community college and then migrating to UCLA for a degree in chemical engineering. Why chemical engineering? It was for the practical reason we need to survive or make a living here. And also I'm, I'm very good with math and uh, science and chemistry okay. and physics and all that. So the two reasons. In other disciplines, it's, it's challenging to write or to communicate and to thrive. So this is the way to get into school and I'm good at it as well. So for those reasons that I pursue the degree. Did you get a scholarship to UCLA? So we have financial aid. Financial aid, okay, very good. Yeah, so that's enough to cover. And we have, technically, I don't have a lot of loan. I mean, they, we loan, but then they give us financial aid, and that's enough to support us. So whatever loan that I got, I, I was able to repay at the end, like directly after oh, the graduation. So, so then there's no, not a lot of loan, not a lot of debt. Yeah. What did your uh, mom and dad do for work when they came to California? Yeah. So my dad finally found a place uh, where he can, art restoration company, a private oh, restoration nice. company in Newport Beach. So he worked full time. So she, he in charge of taking care of the big project, the difficult project, like restoring paintings or some kind of artwork. So that's, he make a living there. And my mom stay home. She's trying to get the, the equivalent pharmacy uh, license. So at that time, the institution required two tests. One is English test. The, set, the first is the pharmacy test. So she passed the pharmacy test, but she couldn't pass the English test. So for like 10 years or so, she couldn't get the equivalent uh, pharmacy uh, license. So she settled with the uh, technician, the pharmacist technician. Okay. So that's how they uh, uh, work here. Okay. Is she working? No, she retired. Oh, so she retired. Okay, very she good. She retired like three years ago. So the story was in the family story. So when my dad worked, my mom couldn't work even though she's trying very hard. But then my dad collapsed uh, with a stroke. So oh, my. 
for for he worked for like a like eight years or so, and he he had a stroke. So by that time, my mom decided to work. So then she get the uh, pharmacist technician. So then when my dad didn't work, my mom pick up the work. So only one of them can work. Same thing in Vietnam. My when I okay. my dad in the prison. My mom worked as a teacher and also as like a business person in the, with the front store. But when he came back, he was able to practice like a, a artist a profession because the investor from people who came here earlier or the the Western investor they come back and they order the painting. So my mom couldn't work. The business is coming down, and then. She retired from teaching, so then my dad worked. So the family stories, only one of them can work, not both. Okay, very good. So let's go back to UCLA Chemical Engineering. Something happened where you decided to join the Society of Jesus. So what experience did you have that moved you from getting a degree, which was going to give you a good financial job, to entering the Jesuits? Was there a, an epiphany moment? Something happened to you, an event? an encounter with someone? What, what, so what's kind of your vocation story? This is a gradual development. Okay. I think the the hardest hit was the migration to U.S. So I never left home. I always be protected and raised at home in Vietnam. Very comfortable. The first time I left the country is, and the, and the dramatic experience from that experience. So you have to go back to the family story. I'm the only child. My grandmother didn't want to leave Vietnam. She wanted to stay to 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 keep the house. My mom had to decide whether to go. My dad wanted to go because he didn't want to stay in. He communism. wanted to get away from communism. Yeah, this is terrible. <laughs> I want to go because of my future. Everybody want to have a chance and people escape, even threaten their life. They still want to escape. So this is a chance for me to leave for a brighter future. But my mom caught in between to pay tribute or be good child to her mother or to go with my dad and her son. So it was a dilemma. Finally, we decide to go. So then at the day when it happened, we had to bow my grandmother, lie. That's only happened when they are dead. But then this is like a live bowing. I want to tell that story because that's a traumatic experience. It's crying and mourning and it's terrible, emotionally traumatic for the 16 years old child. So when I came here, everything changed overnight quickly. The new culture, language, customs, friends, Everything is quiet. It's so crazy. So then I internalized or became quiet when I witnessed all this. So I become more reflective about the experience. And the question came in like, why there's suffering in the world? What What's the meaning of life? Is there a God? And who is God for me? So all those things are playing the background. Why I went to college. Uh, uh, high school and then even the, the stay in the back of my head doing college even though I, I I'm doing well and fine in in the under on the academic and other school I just doing like people do so when I graduate that's when it hit me that what I do I do with this when the next phase when I get a degree the question of life and vocations and what vocation means for me what do I need to do now comes back and 
that's how I decide to depart from okay. my usual career. Was there an event, an experience, a retreat that you went on, an encounter with someone that was kind of the decision-making point to enter the religious life? It was gradual things, many experiences, confirmation that it leads to this, that my heart was inspired by the love that I experienced with my family, especially with my mom. And then the experience when I was an altar boy for a few years in the parish, in the youth group. So that's a tremendous pulling attraction toward this priesthood's life that I want to give this life for better cause. What love is all about. So it's a combination of all these things that lead me to this. For example, the experience of love, right? Love in what's God's love for me. So at one point when I was at college, when I ate my mom's food. So this is a real story. When I went to UCLA, I came home every weekend to visit my parents. It's about 40 minutes commute. I came back home to pick up food as well as after you know, the weekend. So and, you lived on campus at UCLA? I live on campus, yes, in the apartment sharing with other Vietnamese friends as well. And they are older. So I also pick up the communal experience in that time. But the story of the food was I came back home to get all the supply food from my mom and she would spend five hours in on Sunday morning to cook the food for me and then for the family. So every day I would have four containers, small container, two for the lunch and two for the dinner. Uh, one would be for uh, like uh, vegetable, the other is protein. Oh, you, okay. You had a very good mother. Yeah, yeah. So this is an Asian uh, slash Vietnamese kind of caring. So at one point, I was so moved by these food. Then the next things I meditate or during that time was crying or emotional. And then the next level would be God loved me through this and much more. So how can I respond to that? So this is a gradual development with all many things that I have seen witnessing all that. So the, the only thing that come back is how can I repay or respond and, and to this kind of greater love that I experienced to God. So then it make it it's a right feeling that I get to respond to this. This is too much to handle. Like even the ticket to the U.S. is from the sacrifice of my dad, who was in the prison. That's the only way that I can get into the country. And then the whole, you know, loving care of the food that my mom gave me. So those kind of things, it built up and I can't not stop without responding. I get to do something greater or feel like it is a thing so that I can you know, respond to this. Sure. So your vocation thing. really came from the love given to you by your mom and your dad. Yeah, that was Beautiful. it. And then I kind of meditate upward from there. God sure. must love me more than this as well. More right? than this, this, right? Yeah, more than this, because he died for me and all these right. things. It makes, sense. it makes a lot of sense to me. If you go tracing back the whole history of humankind, all that, God had to be in this and all this. And the question of the what's the meaning of life, my struggle, just just like, I guess, similar to Augustine, I would not stop wrestling until I rest in you. Okay. Our hearts are restless, O oh God, until they rest in thee. So that kind of thing resonated with me when I was the first night at the novitiate. So this is another confirmation that I want to tell you. This is a bad story 
So I came in to check out the novitiate experience is all about. The first night I slept on that bed. In the middle of the night, I woke up and I felt that the bed it was very personal, very relatable, and very familiar to me. And I realized that that bed was waiting for me for a long time. So then uh-huh. I was very at peace. So so three step. I just want to capture like this. Okay. First, a familiar thing about this bed. Second, it was waiting. Third, I would stay with this forever. So all the questions that I struggle with, what's the meaning of life? Why am I here? What's God is all about? Is there a God or who is God for me? And what do I do with my life? All those questions became like it's gone in a moment when I slept in that bed. So I just knew this is the right place to be. All these questions, I don't care anymore. But before I was restless because tomorrow I have to work. What happened if I get a house from this career? What's where am I going? I'm going to still have all this, but then I'm going to have to die, and I'm going to come. Where am I going after that? But then after that experience, who cares? I'm in it already. I don't need to worry about you know the. So it, it was a very intuitive kind of a mystical experience, almost of it was uh, waiting for you. It was personal and gave you rest. Yeah. You were home. You were home. Yeah. Yeah, and I. And give me security in terms of spiritual. Both you can say, you know, in terms of financial and, but especially spiritual, because whatever happened to me, I already stay in the, my house, and I would never, you know, even I die, I don't care. It is it's already in. So it's a very profound experience that I don't have to worry about the next day. Nice. If I were to stay out there, I worry about it. When would it end? Where am I going? And it would never give give me rest emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. Only when I'm here, who, who cares? Wherever I be sent and wherever I encounter, it's all God's grace. That'll be good news for people who are wrestling with a uh, religious vocation, that money and a good job are not necessarily going to give you the security you're looking for. It's ultimately our hearts resting in God. I totally resonate with that. All my, a lot of my friends can ask me question, why are you taking this path? You only try, you should work for a few years to get to know, you know, the world before you decide this is too immature. I just said, this is the right time. If I don't, I would never take this turn because I'm accumulated with all these things in life that I cannot turn back. So this right. is it's the what, right moment. When I was 18, I worked for a, a gentleman who owned quite a few grocery stores. And I think he saw me as a future manager of his empire. And I told him that I was going to be becoming a priest. And he just stopped. And he said, you could do anything with your life. Why are you throwing it away like that? Yeah, exactly. And I said, well, it makes me happy. Yeah, <laughs> so, very peaceful. Yeah, very peaceful. So let's migrate from the vocation, entering the society. Obviously, you went through training. But I want to get into your life as an artist. So what was the tipping point between chemical engineering and turning back into an artist? So chemical engineering is kind of a reflection of your mom's pharmacy experience. And moving into art is kind of a reflection of your father's background. So I don't know if there's anything to do with that at all. But yeah, Bill, it's in the family. So I always learned how to make things when I was okay. young, make nativity scene with clay in Vietnam and then painting okay. and all that. So I pick up all along the training from my dad, but it never rises to the surface because it's not a good career to make money. Sure. So it's always part of my expression, my hobby. So when I enter into the society, 
this is when this path opened up where I knew more about art in the society and the need of having artists in the society. And also through the 30-day retreats, where there's a deep call or deep resonance in art making. So both from the society kind of present or like see that, you know, this is the path that they need. And also from my recognition that I have a talent for this. So I asked the superior uh, formation director whether this is a possible path. And he's all support to my discernment. Nice. So, so then that's when it happened. So to answer the question, 30-day retreat makes sense and the support for the superior makes sense and the inheritance, uh, you know, the gene that from the family that okay. helps. And I'll tell you the story of getting to the MFA. That's also an amazing story. for people story. who don't know, that's a master of fine arts. Yeah, it's an amazing story too. From the BS degree to MFA directly without getting a BFA. That was also a miracle. So this is a sign that I find that this is, it got to be God in this. A miracle happened. Uh, to tell <laughs> Very us, good. The short story, I have to apply, no, I apply 11 school for MFA and only one school, a Pratt Institute in New York, accept me. And all along, I always got rejected letters. And it makes a lot of sense because, you know, I have to compete with the BFA students. And right. I don't have even BFA. I only have the required classes from the Art Institute of Chicago because I was sent to Chicago to study philosophy with the intention that I take classes at Art Institute of Chicago through the scholarship there. So the permission of the superior kind of uh, nice. helped me to, to this. And it happened that because of those classes, because of those connections, I was able to apply for MFA, but without BFA, the dramatic story was even the Art Institute of Chicago didn't accept me for MFA, even though I knew most of the faculty there. And they suggest me to do a post-bachelor of fine art. Even I applied to there, they also declined. So in other words, it, it happened this miracle. So all of a sudden I get, get into Pratt Institute, which is one of the, the top 15 schools in the nation at that time. Sure. And it's in New York, which is a big cultural center for art. So it happened. And, and you were a Jesuit at this time. And was it after your philosophy that you did this? During philosophy. During philosophy. Okay, very good. Oh, okay, so during philosophy for additional art courses, but get to MFA after philosophy. So during my formation, you're right. Okay, very good. So you are in the process of completing a bronze crucifix for the Cathedral of St. James here in Seattle, which is a very, very good commission. Yes. Tell us about that process and where you see yourself going future as an artist. Yeah, this is a great commission that I have a chance to execute my passion, both in my religious life and also in art. So I noticed that in the history of our Catholic art, we don't have something that really depict the Paschal mystery of our faith. Uh, Christ either died, depicted a dead body or resurrected body, person on the cross or just the cross itself. But basically because of my training in theology and also being a priest, I totally see the Paschal mystery living this in our daily life. The cross is both 
living through dying or a sacrifice for love. And you got to see both glory and also the suffering of it. And the trouble of fine art, it's still art kind of object, is that it only can allow you to do one or the other. So I try to do both in this, and incorporate that still image in these four features. Leaping feet, blessing hands, gazing head, textural body, even though it looks like he's dying on the cross. So those features that I just incorporate to make sense of the living through dying. So he's not drooping like most of the cross these uh, you know in the, our tradition has depicted, and it reflect the, the theology of the time. When the time you want to associate Christ with the suffering, because you know the, with the poor and with the sufferer, sure. with all these things, we need accompaniment of God in our life. That's for one. That's a good one. So he's leaping into eternity from the cross, right? Yes, and he looking down. So that's the tension between gazing down to pull people up. Nice. Lovingly. And the blessing of the arm also is not pinning on the on the cross, but is open up. I get that gaze from being a priest when you celebrate mass. You you're not pinning. You not just turn your hand outward, like you know, like vertically. You turn it, you know, in a forty-five degree, and that is where I want to incorporate that in the in the crucifix. Even though he he has the, the wounds, right? Everything's uh, there, but right. if you look carefully, he's not pinning. Okay, so uh, so that, but then if you do it, the resurrected body, that's come back to the first few century when. Christianity want to communicate the good news. We want to communicate as a winner, like God conquered death. So therefore, there's no death depiction. It's only the resurrection, but it's not just the resurrection. If you skip the passion, this, this is, is fake, it's superficial. But we had to do that in the first few century. And then we get so much into death, we, have, we forget about the glory of the resurrection. So at this time, I want to incorporate both. And it's very challenging to do both, but I'm very happy to attempt to do that. And I hope it gives us, uh, the viewers, to reflect upon this powerful meaning of living as a Catholic. Wonderful, Father Trump. This is great. This has been Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast with Father Bill Watson. If you liked our program, please subscribe to our podcast channel. And may God bless you.